Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Central. How you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes. Welcome to Tech Radio for 10 years. The number one Irish tech podcast bringing you the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember as well as our show on air with RT and online via the website or your favourite podcasting app, we keep you bang up to date on all things tech every single day with hourly updates and daily newsletters which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie. Now of course last week our editor Niall Kitson reported from the floor of the BT Young Scientist and Technology Exhibition and this week Niall is taking behind the scenes at the Mindshare event to get a deeper dive into the future of topics such as AI and the ethics of technology with Azim Azar, a man who's firmly embedded in the future of tech, as Niall describes. I'm speaking now with Azim Azar, a man of many hats. He is a digital strategist, an entrepreneur, uh, an analyst, and, and also senior advisor to uh, some very important people in some very large companies, uh, which I'll refrain from uh, mentioning specifically. He's also the founder of the actually quite wonderful newsletter that I subscribe to uh, called The Exponential View. So uh, we're going to have a sit down and talk about trends in technology uh, for the next few minutes. So I guess it's one of the interesting things that uh, technology commentators uh, like to talk about is the speed of change. Mm -hmm. So um, tell us a little bit about your experience and your journey in growing up with technology, I guess, beginning with the television. Yes, the speed of change is sometimes quite exhausting. Uh, really, really moves so so quickly. I was a child of the microprocessor uh, revolution, so I was born in the early 70s, uh, just about a year or so after Intel brought out the 4004 chip. Uh, which really kicked off the PC uh, revolution. Um, and I was lucky enough to uh, get, uh, get access to a computer via a neighbor before I was eight years old uh, and have lived with... Uh, as an observer of the technology and the technology maturing from being a tinkerer, the point when you'd get a computer at home and you'd think, what do I do with this? What am I meant to do? And uh, and, and what um, I think has, uh, when I look back on my old ZX81, which I still have, it's on my desk at home, uh, what surprises me is, in a sense, how quickly uh, this technology matured um, and it made, it made its way into our, uh, into our homes. Um, when it comes specifically to the, the pace of change, um, people often say, oh, things are getting, getting faster. Uh, and then the question is, is there really any evidence for it? Uh, and we are starting to see um, where you look quite a lot of evidence that um, we are innovating, that is coming up with new stuff more quickly than ever before, that we are able to Distribute it, that sell it, and get it into people's hands and their homes faster than ever before. Um, and, and there's a there's a data set um, that one analyst called Horace Dedu has captured that goes back over 200 years, and it looks at how long it takes innovations to go from nothing to mass market, 75, 80 percent penetration. And it's very clear visually, and you can see this on some of my uh, YouTube presentations when I've showed the slide set that those lines are getting more and more vertical. Uh, and there are many, many more of them. And our own personal experience will, will, will show that. You know, we, we um, find, about, you find out about a game uh, on, a, on the App Store or, or the Play Store on a, on a Monday, and by Wednesday, everybody you know is playing it. Uh, so the rate with which we are able to actually get these things into the market is 
getting faster and faster and we've spent 50 years in marketing and supply chain and logistics to make sure we can do that with physical products. Uh, but the underlying rate of innovation um, is also extremely fast. And it's extremely fast because of the internet, which allows us to share our know-how. It's extremely fast because of open source, because stuff is available for us to, to, to quickly copy. Um, and it's, it's, it's increasing because of things like archive, um, which is a way of researchers sharing their material before it gets peer-reviewed. And as an example, I mean, today I'm at the BT Young Scientist uh, exhibition in, in Dublin. Uh, as an example, I saw a 17-year-old school child who had built a machine vision system to detect cervical cancer more accurately. And she used a particular technique to generate synthetic data because she didn't have enough training data. That was called generative adversarial networks to increase the training data size by a factor of 10, one order of magnitude. That technique that she used in late 2018 was first developed in 2014 by Ian Goodfellow, who is one of the top AI researchers in the world. And it's taken less than five years to go from that very first experiment to someone at a school building a working application with that technology. And that is pretty remarkable. It's also pretty damn speed of change. There's a, one term that uh, you talk about, and that's definitional change. Mm. Uh, and you're effectively talking about the arrival of a new technology or a new product class mm. that just, it's a game changer. And we're, we're starting to see it with AI, but it's actually been a pretty slow journey. Well, I think there are two definition, definitions of definitional change. Sorry, there are two ways of thinking about definitional change. One is um, about the actual definitions and the words that we use, and the second is about the technologies. When I say definitional change, I also mean that we're running out of words to describe the phenomena that we see. And so we're constantly having to go back to historical analogies or science fiction or um, you know, even religious writing to try to explain the, the, the everyday phenomenon of the technologies that we, 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 we see, we use. And that is a sign that there is a, a, a change uh, coming. Um, in the case of, of AI, um, it's taken... We've been talking about AI for about 60 years, um, and it's meant many different things at many different times. Um, but now we're getting to a point of maturity where you can see new novel categories of products emerge, voice computing being a, a good example. Uh, and, and voice, I guess, there's a wonderful uh, company called Soapbox Labs uh, operating Dub in okay. Dublin at the moment. And they've discovered that when it comes to voice control, an awful lot of the research has been done on adult voices. So when it comes to actually figuring out what children uh, talk and how they talk, you effectively have to reteach them uh, language from the get-go. And that, that uh, occurs across the board. So you Teach the machines or teach the kid children? Teach the machines. Ah, um, right. So you, you've got the stage where you know, a machine can recognize uh, an adult command based mm. on register and, and mm. tone of voice and, and whatnot, but has to relearn the, the problem and the solution for children. So I, we're finding that AI is solving problems, but in ways that help us actually redefine questions, do you think? Uh, well, that's a great question. Um, it's a really, really, uh, it's a deep question that gets to the, to the heart of what happens when you bring out um, a new technology, particularly a new technology like this one. Uh, it helps us see the world in new ways and, and see things that um, 
have always been there, but we've never been able to identify them. And I'm going to give a, two or three examples here. So one is um, recently, in the last couple of weeks, there was a research paper where some people had used, uh, researchers had used um, machine vision to look at um, PET scans, a type of brain, a scan of the, of the brain, and were able to identify Alzheimer's patients six years before they showed any symptoms. Because at some higher order dimensionality, those structures existed in the scans, but humans weren't able to identify them. A second example is also in the medical imaging space where there's a technique of looking at um, the vascularity in the retina, uh, so the veins in the the back of the eye, to help you identify whether someone is at risk of diabetes. Um, And when they, they did this, they built a machine vision system that could naturally do this so much better than any typical human reading those scans, they also figured out that this system could identify the biological sex of the person with incredible accuracy. Now, no doctor had ever known that because, again, it was in a higher dimensionality space. So we've now established these these new things that allow us to ask new questions to try to figure out why. But the third example is that in in, text processing and natural language processing, uh, the we've identified, been able to identify the underlying semantic relationships and the meaning of um, words in text as those words get learnt by something that is fundamentally neutral because it is effectively a statistical box. And what it identified was, it showed us, was the kind of persistent gender bias that existed within large corpuses of English language text, whether it was newspapers or fiction or or, or fact. And and the the example was that essentially um, the machine learnt, discovered highly gendered relationships, king to queen, doctor to nurse, uh, those sorts of things. Why that's helpful is because actually it kind of closes off a debate that is being had between sort of progressives and conservatives about whether text, the texts of the everyday world, um, were, are showing, exhibiting this bias or not. Um, because it's, it's a sort of empirical observation that shows it's, that this bias exists. Now we can get to the more interesting question, which is how much do we care about it? And progressives and conservatives are going to take different, different views of that. And so it gives us these... these these superpowers that I think allow us to find novel parts of hidden meaning. And in some cases, they're just very helpful. In other cases, it starts to raise uncomfortable questions that we have been sometimes arguing about in unhealthy ways. But, but I, I, you know, I'm generally, I I'm I'm, I'm believe that knowledge is power in this context, and we can make use of this better insight to have better discussions and get to better outcomes. So effectively, what you're talking about there is a redefining of the idea of peer review. Uh, and looking at AI as a tool to peer review. So you can Mm. objectively get to the argument and the data without thinking, oh, well, that's, for want of a a nicer term, fake news. So when we're looking at uh, tools that remove these elements, you're actually looking at a kind of retraining as well, and that's something that's going to happen not just in the intellectual sciences, but, uh, of course, filtering down into the regular workforce, and that's something that we're seeing with automation across the board. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question at this stage is, you know, what is the timeline, do you think, on automation uh, and Industry 4.0 as, as it's looking? Because we imagine that, okay, filtering out bias is somewhere down the line, but uh, looking at automation of supply chains is pretty much with us. Uh, so the, the, 
Automation has, has been with us for a, long, for a long period of time, and we automate things um, regularly because it happens to make sense. A direct debit out of your bank account is an automation. You don't have to write the same check every, every single um, m- month. What we've done in business is we have uh, spent the last 30 or 40 years constructing an infrastructure that is really, really good for automation. We did business process re-engineering 30 years ago. Um, We then started to implement ERP systems and CRM systems, and then we started to build data lakes to put all our data in one place, and then we moved on to the cloud so we could have access to infinite compute. All of those things are the elements that an AI system needs, given its current limitations, to work well. You need well-defined interfaces, which is what business process uh, engineering and CRM and so on gave you. You need data in one place, you need compute. So we have spent 30 or 40 years building an infrastructure that will lend itself to very fast return on investment from the the implementation of of AI. Now, that's within offices. When you think about industry and physical manufacturing and and, and, physical robots, uh, we've, we've got much further to travel. Uh, and of course, one thing that we're we're dancing around here, of course, is the the, the issue of ethics mm-hmm. in technology. And when we're talking about the potential of automation, you actually have to consider the human cost or, mm-hmm. or the human changes that that have to go underway. So, for somebody that's working, what we would regard as a menial job at the moment, um, what do we see uh, down the road if somebody, if a manager come comes around and says, you know what, your job is being automated, but there is hope for something else? Well, I would hope that managers wouldn't approach the, the problem in that way uh, and that you know, we're starting to build a playbook for how you might tackle this type of question and that, that, um, that playbook would include things like um, bringing employees into the dis- debate and the discussion about what needs to be automated and what sort of changes should happen and how they should be implemented. Uh, and there are some increasing case studies even in things like garment manufacturer out in um, the Asia Pacific where firms have quite successfully enlisted their frontline workers who are into the discussion about where automation could take hold to improve working practices and working conditions um, and to improve productivity and outputs so I don't think it has to it has to be a a picture of um, someone walks into a room full of workers and say you're all fired and you're replaced by Robbie the Robot. Uh, That work makes for good cinema, but I think that many organisations will be much smarter than that in terms of the negotiation, the discussion, the collaboration that they they use uh, in order to implement that change. And and specifically, when we look at white-collar automation, so automating within offices, using a technique, um, technology called robotic process automation, which... It's very dumb scripting. It's not machine learning. It's not even broader artificial intelligence. It's sort of dumb scripting, but it can automate some of the things that happen with invoices and you know, receipts and those, those sorts of things that happen in large organizations. Uh, very few of them have actually hit their headcount reduction targets if they had those targets because it turned out that even as you put that automation in, there was such a backlog of other work that needed to get done that people who were doing menial tasks were able to get onto high-value work that they were absolutely capable of doing but also had all the tacit knowledge that resides within firms and isn't codified in how-to manuals. And so you, you didn't want that knowledge walking out of the door by laying these people off. And so it seems like when, you, when there are circumstances where you can implement RPA and you can handle 
the excess work workforce through natural wastage, people wanting a change and being offered a package, and also by the fact that you've got a ton of work that isn't being done uh, on the side. Uh, now, that's, that is the rosiest end of the picture. And so you can imagine organisations that don't have the same sort of values or perhaps they don't have the same balance sheet to ride through the change, um, and it'll happen differently. But, but I think we can sit, sit down and have a positive conversation um, about this, uh, and that will create and influence people to, to be um, more thoughtful about how they approach this question. So what we're pretty much looking at is the primacy of soft skills uh, in an age where software and hardware is getting smarter. Um, is that message getting across, or are there, is there always going to be a stage of hardcore evangelists that say, that's the, this is the future, and stuckists who are like, well, this is actually working for us at the moment? Uh, the, the question of soft skills um, has become more uh, important uh, and I think people, the more people are discussing the importance of, of them and in fact I wrote an essay recently saying we shouldn't call them soft skills because uh, actually um, partial differentiation um, is pretty easy compared to trying to get two teenagers to do something they don't want to do. I mean that's, that's a power skill uh, and so ultimately human systems um, are the systems, the context within which the technologies work. And so you need to be able to get on with people and influence people and listen to people and hear them and understand them. And those things are, are really, really important to double down on. I think one of the concerns I see in, in the UK, and I can't speak to Ireland, is this very, very strong obsession on STEM because we've not done STEM very well, but we've also not done empathy, leadership, listening, collaborative problem solving very well either because in general we're not just doing a, bun we're doing a bunch of things not very well at all in the UK and I think I noted in Ireland that actually Ireland is pretty high up there on things like PISA rankings and, uh, and so on so seems to be doing a, uh, uh, a decent job in the, the sort of baseline skills and the, the, the point now to ask is that the most effective software developers or engineers are the ones who work in complex teams. That requires people skills. One of the interesting things about AI that we're finding is as the technology matures it can often be let down by its inputs, by, by the data that mm -hmm. it has to deal with. Um, we were talking earlier about finding answers to questions that we didn't know we were asking in the first place. Um, however, we live in an age of GDPR mm -hmm. and that sort of, it almost puts constraints on the kind of questions that we can ask if we're not looking for <laughs> specific fields. What's yeah. your take on that? That's a great, that's a really great question. Well, uh, I think the, the, the first thing is that not all data is about personal data and we tend to, to, to forget, you know, forget that. And GDPR in general is I'm very, very supportive um, of, of it and of enabling the, the rights of citizens to not be exploited um, should, in, in this particular way. And, you know, look forward to those being fleshed out more uh, over, over time. Um, lot, tons and tons of data that, that is going to be useful and valuable is not coming from people. It'll be sens sensor data in the fields, measuring temperature and humidity, uh, and uh, it'll be uh, uh, overflights of um, traffic junctions to figure out where jams emerge. Uh, uh, it'll be um, tracking the, the flow of... Um, goods through a factory or through a warehouse to better optimize for energy efficiency the positioning of of, of items um, uh, and 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 we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that that there's a very wide spectrum of data um, and and a lot of it doesn't really impinge on on our rights and is rare it's not always about someone trying to manipulate us for their benefit and our loss 
uh, and I guess this is pretty much the the upside of the Internet of Things, where you get to actually design better systems, whether it be a smart city or you know um, better management of farms. Uh, well, yeah, and I'm not. I'm I'm always a bit curious about the term Internet of Things, to be honest, because I I don't. Um, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm a believer in um, practitioner-driven um, adoption. I think that's really important. I also, I also believe that um, you're better off with technologies emerging before the marketing wrapper appears. And the Internet of Things, to me, always seemed like a bit of a, a marketing wrapper. Uh, if we mean connected sensors, um, and if we mean connected smart sensors that feed data back that allow me to figure out what's going on, then, then I think that's really, really exciting. And I've seen a bunch of um, uh, sort of exciting projects, in, including one where people were able to track the vibration patterns of wind turbines to figure out weeks in advance of them breaking down, and so you do pro- proactive maintenance. Um, that, seem, that seems great, but one's always a little bit wary when you get um, a sort of a, a marketing wrapper emerging before the real use case has has arrived. Another thing that you've spoken about is the advancement of technology also as an issue of culture and an issue of ethics. Mm. Um, So one thing that comes wrapped up in the culture of technology is the idea of the the founder, the founder Mm. as sort of the Mm -hmm. the originator, the the godhead, if you will. To what extent is this a myth? Well, I I think it's massively uh, a myth. Um, uh, Ideas emerge. um, They emerge from cultural uh, interchange. uh, And if they don't emerge uh, today, they'll emerge tomorrow. Um, And we can just see it with calculus. Who invented calculus? Was it Descartes or was it... Sorry, who invented calculus? Was it Newton or was it Leibniz? And there's an argument as to who did it. And they did it independently at different times in slightly different notation. Um, Now... It becomes easy from a media perspective and from an investment perspective to create these hagiographies, these sort of Iron uh, Man-like characters, uh, and say, well, without them, nothing would have happened. And there is no question that there is clearly something special about the likes of Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or Steve Jobs um, in what they were able to build. But those individuals came from a context. There's a great line about Thomas Edison's great inventor. He said, I've not failed. I've found 9,999 ways of not doing something. Uh, But during those 10,000 or so trials, he had to be kept safe, kept watered, kept clean, and fed. And there was an infrastructure that provided, provided that. And that infrastructure is often delivered by two hugely overlooked parts of um, the innovation system uh, the mum and the state uh, ignored consistently in their foundational role in, in delivering these, these people and, and within that, that context and they, 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 you know, however brilliant they are, they require tens of thousands of people to realise their, their vision in particular ways. So I think we've done too much to focus on um, the, the, the uh, pivotal role of individuals because it makes for very, very good stories. Um, uh, and that's why when you read the histories of um, you know, technology companies, whether it's an Intel or uh, someone else, you know, there are always many, many more characters than the one or two names that you, you associate 
uh, with it. And I think that's quite important for us to have an inclusive view of what technology is and what science is, is to try to recognise that, of course, hard-working people who have spent their time developing special skills can make a difference, but they're not the, they're not the end of the story. I guess one of the interesting things about technologists uh, when it comes to politics is this embrace of libertarianism uh, and sort of the, uh, I guess following on from that, the culture of the individual. <laughs> and do you think, where does this idea come from? You know, is it the idea that the technologist can exist outside of society uh, without necessarily contributing? Uh, I love that question. I mean, it's, <laughs> it is so complicated and confused. I think it's mostly they haven't read enough. Uh, but if you look back at um, uh, Silicon Valley and the origins of, of Silicon Valley, it has a number of uh, themes to it. There was a close proximity to the defense industry, which has a, breeds a particular type of person. And, and then California in the 60s was a place that you went into to discover yourself and drop out and escape the man. Um, and so... If you th- think back to the to the late 60s, 68, Summer of Love and, and, and so on, you have these two different um, movements. You have a kind of counterculture movement on the one hand, um, uh, and you have a, uh, a very, very um, market-oriented movement that starts to emerge in the, in the 1970s. Uh, uh, in in the, the, the face of quite a commercial culture anyway, which is the US, uh, and, and those things have really sat... Um, uneasily in, um, in, in Silicon Valley, in my experience, and I haven't been Silicon Valley now for, um, uh, for, a, for a couple of years, um, but the, the thing that, um, that would will strike you when you, you go there is um, there's, there's an absolute absence of belief of things that we as Europeans uh, just take for granted um, that the government would sort of work for us and try to do things that benefit us, whereas in, in, in the US and particularly in the Bay Area, it's often seen as something that gets in the way of things because it's annoying, those pesky safety regulations. Uh, and, and so I've written about the way in which that um, culture infuses the product decisions um, that are made by these, these companies and how that then finds its way into our everyday lives, um, often in, in ways that are, that are, that are sim- seemingly trivial but actually have, have an impact. Um, so the question is, can you construct some diversity in the way in which we build technologies? And I think we're starting to see that because uh, you're starting to see great companies come out of Europe and they have much more of a pro-social sensibility than the ones that come out of the Bay Area, for example. And I think we've seen that in the attitude to data that, that is coming to fruition now in GDPR, where in Europe we have the idea that your data is your own, and in the States it, it seems to be very much you created it, we own it. Well, I, I think a, a slight subtle difference there. Um, in, uh, in, this, in the States, the movement is to, to try to marketize your data. So even though now companies are, are exploiting your, you know, your, your data or making use of it, um, People who are thinking about innovating in, in that area say, listen, we should turn this into a piece of property that you can then sell and marketize you as an individual. I don't think in Europe we say this is, this is your data for you to own because own is a kind of property relationship. What we say is you've got certain rights about your data. 
um, and about how it can be used by other people. And you can exercise those rights to get your data back so it can't be used by those other people. It's not quite the same as saying we are marketizing your data. And I'm not sure if we have a, an, an agreement, reached an agreement yet ab- about that. And I think that there are both um, benefits and problems with with turning data into a thing that can be bought and so that you or I can buy and sell about ourselves. Um, one of the benefits is that as soon as you start to price something, of course, um, the price mechanism allows you to allocate resources effectively, and that's a really sort of good, good outcome. I think the thing that's, that's challenging is that there are lots of times when my data is not of much use to me, and it's not much of much use to you on its own, but combined with a million other people, it's of great use to all of us and still very little use to me. To me. So those sort of positive externalities, emergent quality of aggregating lots of data. And a good example might be, um, you know, uh, walking duration of, of in cities, right, to help me plan traffic lights or pedestrian crossings and, and, and so on. It's not that much use for me to know that data about myself or for you to know it about me, but get all of our data, we can build better cities. How do we ensure that those sorts of things should be, we can, we can access because of the, the welfare benefits of them? One of the, the approaches that I think is interesting is this idea of presumed consent, which happens in the organ donation um, area. So in, with, with organ donation in some countries, like in the UK, um, you know, if you get hit by a car, um, I have to see if you've got an organ donor car card before I can take your I'm assuming you're killed um, uh, before I can take your kidney and give it to somebody who needs it and there are some countries where there's presumed consent so unless you've opted out if you die I get access to your organs which has done amazing things for the level of organ donation and killing organ uh, reducing organ backlogs um, the the question with data is are there types of are there types of my behavior and the data trails that I create that should be presumed to be accessible for social benefit and how do we then govern and police that and I think it's a really interesting area to exploit, explore because I'd love to think that we could all get together and metaphorically build a new digital public park through data that we just generated doing our everyday lives and it benefits everyone and it's not used against us and I think that would be a kind of interesting space to get to. One last point uh, on the rise of AI and definitional change. One of the things that we see over and over again in the writing and, of course, in in, um, science fiction is the idea of the singularity, the point at which machine intelligence will equal or surpass human intelligence. How close are we to this? Uh, well, I, I mean, I talk, read and talk to experts. I don't think we're very close, uh, by very close, you know, not in the next 15 or 20 years. And I'm not even sure about the question. I mean, I think there are areas, clearly very narrow areas that are quite sophisticated, like um, zero-knowledge games like Go and chess, which uh, computers now vastly exceed our capabilities. Uh, and in the same way that there are machines that vastly ex- exceed human capabilities in strength. Um, uh, the the path to uh, human level general uh, intelligence um, is, I think, is 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 going to take quite a long time because we don't have a good working model for how we will get there. But will we construct these new machines, super spreadsheets that will do exceptionally superhuman things? for very, very complex problems, some of which we can't even hold in our heads. I think we, we, we will. And one area, for example, will be um, anything to do with uh, sort of optimizations and, and route planning and, and so on, where humans kind of get confused at about five or six choices. Well, we live in a world where sometimes there are hundreds or thousands of choices, and 
um, machine-based systems will get are already better than us, and they will get, continue to get better than us, and so they'll take us places where our the legs of our mind can't reach. And that was our tech central editor, Niall Kitson, chatting to tech entrepreneur Azim Azar at the Mindshare event. That's our show for this week. Do remember you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website techcentral.ie or listen for us each week online or Fridays at 5pm on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.